Hey everybody, welcome to Hit Rewind. This episode we're discussing Hellraiser 1 and 2. Uh, I'm your host, Michael. Kersey's my co-host on the other side. Hey, I can't wait. I've been waiting for this one. This uh, Hellraiser 1 is one of my favorites. Yeah, and I, okay, this is the only movie that's ever been banned in my house. Did I, we already discuss this last time? I can't remember. You talked to me privately about it, and I don't think you talked about it on the show. Yeah, it's one of those where it's just my mom having to walk in the living room. It was the part where uh, the hooks were tearing him apart at the end. And he's like, Jesus, what, whatever. And she's like, okay. She wasn't mad. She was like, this is never played in the house again. And yeah, it was pretty intense. It was pretty disgusting. And she, we she was too movies. scared. She was too scared to be mad. Yeah, it was, it was pretty disgusting. Um, but I, it, the funny thing is I haven't seen it since. And that was more than 20 years ago. Uh, it was the last time I saw that movie. Um, but I had a roommate that was a huge fan of it. I remember catching the second one on television. The third one, uh, we rented at a movie party. The fourth one is where I tapped out. And I might have seen parts of five on television, but I didn't actively go seeking these movies. But this went on for fucking ever. I had no idea there were so many of these. Yeah, it's, it's insane how badly they wanted to keep the license to this movie and then do nothing with it. Yeah, I, mean, I remember years where Clive Barker was like, oh yeah, so I'm going to get the rights back by the end of the year or whatever, and I'm going to remake it, and then, you know, Dimension would barf out another one, you know, like, just a quick shoot that cost, like, $300,000. I think the lowest point was probably, like, the seventh one, <laughs> where it was, uh, I don't know, there, there was, like, some found footage shit along oh. with it. It was bad. Okay. Yeah, and, and we've talked, you know, like some of the, the stories throughout the years were just scripts where they bought them and then added uh, Pinhead to it. Yeah, and in, in my opinion, that actually works way better than the other, like, number three and four, which are purely about the Cenobites. They don't really do anything, like, the story doesn't really mean anything. It would be like having a Michael Myers movie where you just follow Michael Myers for the entire movie. It would be really boring. Yeah. Well, and I forgot how little the Cenobites are in the first one. They're not even in the second one that much. But, um, yeah, it's the third one when they went over to Dimension Pictures is when, you know, they pushed to have them, you know, f you know right in front of everybody and out in the streets of Los Angeles. I think it might be the most expensive of the whole franchise. This yes, has never been a... It's, it's campy as fuck. <laughs> It's so bad, dude. It's so bad. Yeah. So I think the first two... I think the first one's definitely a masterpiece. I was really impressed. This thing costs $900,000, and I'm telling you right now, almost all of it is in the special effects. I can't believe how good they look. Yeah, it's still incredible. Yeah, and we, and we watched this in high definition, um, and I just can't see the cheapness in it. Uh, they're, they're wearing full bodysuits, skinless people, and... You know, tearing people apart. The only part where I can tell where it's like that fake skin that you would see, like especially yep. in like Italian yep. movies, uh, is when the hooks go in, and then you kind of see that weird texture. But otherwise, I thought it was phenomenal. And there's some claymation, but at the the lighting when they do the claymation is so good. It's not that it makes it look necessarily realistic. It just has a really stylistic choice to it. And it might just be out of necessity, but I thought the claymation looks fantastic. Yeah, there's a lot of it in the second movie. I don't recall if there is any in the first. It's yeah, uh, there's. I think there's that scene where his uh, when he's okay. So we should probably let's, let's talk about the the plot first of all, because the plot is actually really important to understanding like who the Cenobites are, what they do. Right. So the plot basically revolves around 
a woman is moving into uh, her house with her husband, but she's still pining over her old lover who had abandoned her, which turns out to be her husband's brother. Um, and then what happened was that he actually opened up a puzzle box that unleashed these, what they're called Cenobites, um, who basically carry people into hell or their version of hell, some otherworldly place where there's no time or anything. People, it's, yeah, it's basically just hell. And um, the husband cuts his hand and he walks into the room and blood is spilling on the floor. And then from that, some kind of ritual or some kind of barrier is crossed where the, her old lover, his brother, um, comes back. But he doesn't come back right away. He comes back basically as just a pile of gore. Yeah. And so, so. the thing is, though, is that he was seeking... Uh, he was always searching for ultimate like pleasure and pain. And he had heard word that there was a puzzle box that could open up gateways. He goes to the Cairo or something like that or uh, to find it. And he takes it home and opens it up. And then he's killed immediately. But the, the fact that his blood kin... Uh, spilled his own blood on the same exact spot where he was taken by the Cenobites is what opens the doorway. Uh, and then I thought that special effects were just amazing. Like going from just uh, like a speck of what he used to be and slowly growing into, you know, it's not a full blown like body because he can't use his legs and he's, he's just like, it's not even muscle really in tissue. It's just like the, the tendons and the, the viscera yeah it's just he can barely move or whatever but more blood is what gives him his body back and it's up to claire to bring home people from like bars and stuff like that and sacrifice them so that he can take their blood it's weird how the rules are like he can take his fingers and shove it into her neck and he absorbs their blood that way mm-hmm yeah it doesn't really explain a lot of like how these things work which for some people, it might be really frustrating, but I think it just adds to this sort of otherworldliness that we don't really understand how it works. And yeah. I think that, re that really works, especially when you add the Cenobites into the story who don't even show up until, like, I don't know, an hour into the movie. Yeah, so a lot of the movie is her sacrifice, and he slowly builds in this mystery uh, from Ashley Lawrence. Uh, she's the daughter of, not Frank, um, shit. Uh, he was the bad guy in the first Dirty Hair. I can't, uh, uh, Andrew Robinson. I can't remember his character's name. But um, he... She just, she just calls him daddy. Throughout the yeah, movie. just call him daddy. She's, she's looking to help her father because she doesn't trust his new wife. And that's a lot of the mystery for like the whole first hour. And then when she when they finally like Frank solidifies... <clears throat> excuse me, Frank solidifies. Well, I mean, I guess the rules are their own. It's it's a world that doesn't exist, so therefore they have their own mythology, and if you come back from another world, you just happen to have a new ability, I guess. It's like a supernatural power you brought back from uh, Hell World. Yeah. And, uh, but here's, but the, the catch is that you can kind of grow back your organs, your senses, uh, muscles, veins, all those things, but what you can't take with you is skin. For whatever reason, that's owned by the Cenobites, or you can't grow it back. For whatever reason, I guess I know that a lot of um, the the movie is kind of about flesh, and it's kind of that Cronenberg idea of like what flesh is and what it represents. So I think the Cenobites own your skin for some reason. Yeah, I don't know. That's kind of how I interpreted it. So you can never get that back. So where the tension comes in into the movie is that um, in order for him to come back 
to the human world and to interact with people and to leave the house would be that he needs skin and it just so happens that his brother is living in the house and that would raise no suspicion if he suddenly were to take on his form yeah and that's a great it reminds me of the movie stepfather uh where you know he's he's hiding in the identity of another person uh, you know quotation marks skin um and then frank is hiding in her father or whatever and there's a lot of sexual stuff in this. This would pair, I think, really well with uh, From Beyond. Yes. There's a, a, you know, because in that movie, he's trying to tap into another reality to, you know, this ultimate feeling of sexual gratification and also pain. There's an S&M quality to it. There's also in this. And uh, he's lusting after his own niece. And, and he just, like, he like wants to fuck everything, but he also wants to murder everything. And it's just, it's a very weird balance. But... Uh, Clive Barker, I guess, had that in. I never read any of his books. I've only ever seen like the movies he produced or directed. That does seem to be an underlying notion in a lot of his stuff: is sex and blood mixing in the world together. Yeah, and I think this movie does it most deftly um, than pretty much any other interpretation. Yeah, um, and I think part of the reason too is that the look of the Cenobites is perfect for these themes. Yeah. Because they have, and it, it's a very S and M style um, look, but also like it's it almost looks like a like what they're wearing is like butcher's apron at the same time. So it kind of combines the deviant sex with um, with torture and pain and suffering. Uh-huh. Yeah, and well, even when Pinhead is talking, you know, he has this deep, gravelly, threatening voice, but he's also weirdly tempting like he goes out we'll show you so much pleasure and pain you know we'll tear your soul apart (laughs) yeah and it's just like kind of like is he's teasing this this world of s&m and and, uh sadomasochism wait what does s&m stand for did i just is this sadomasochist i don't know i'm a fucking moron Jeez. Yeah, it's just not your world that's all right fire me from this show you take over (laughs) (laughs) um but I think the rules that they establish and the fact that the the Cenobites are so unique looking, like nothing you've ever seen before. I still think Chatterer is truly disturbing more than anybody else. And I think you forget that there's a female Cenobite who's just as important it's as Pinhead. The neck is slit open. What's that? Well, yeah, the neck slit open, that one. Yeah, but her character is just as important as Pinhead. She almost is the lead, too. Yes. And over the years, they pushed her away, and I thought that was kind of a shame because I think there's a lot to work with in that character. From what I understand, all of them were supposed to talk, um, but because of the costumes, it made it really difficult to make it look convincing. So Pinhead kind of had to take on the majority of the dialogue, which is why he's sort of seen as the leader, but originally it was supposed to be like they were a part of a choir. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think um, it, I think yeah. it's a hell of an ending. I the one thing that always throws me off. Look, it's cheap as shit, um, but something about it's so off kilter that I find it interesting. Is whenever they have the torture scenes, there's a weird block that just goes in circles. There's like meat attached to it. Like someone took a piece of a face and a hammer and just put it on there. And yeah, it looks like it's a five dollar special effect. For some reason, it's really interesting. And do the hooks come out of that thing, or do they just come out from another world? I don't. I never caught on to what that was. I have no idea. It's always fascinated me what the podium means, or like what it adds to it. It adds just this ethereal, otherworldliness that we don't understand, which is expanded on in the in the sequel. Um, but just a couple quick details that I really enjoy. 
um, about the about the first one is just I really think that this one more than anything really had the themes of pain and pleasure, and it's something that the Cenobites always talk about in the future movies. But they never really like the stories never really involve those things. This movie actually involves passion in both like the most positive sensual sexual desires but also for like pain and uh, self-harm as well yeah so I, I think that this movie more than anything um it just kind of like perfect in its tones and its theme and it just like all comes together in this movie and i think there's two little bits of special effects or lighting that they do to give you an idea that they're opening up the other world probably costs nothing to do but i think is really effective is when you're first opening up the box and, and, and the world's starting to split is the lighting through the panels i thought that was a really good simple effect but i also absolutely adore when she goes into that tunnel uh she's starting to go into that world and <laughs> whatever the fuck that giant creature is giant uh fucking the shrimp thing yeah it looks like a shrimp or a scorpion or i don't know why it was and i was like yeah that's awesome <laughs> Oh, yeah, another thing I really love about this movie is that the Cenobites kind of have their own sense of... Um, it's kind of like their own version of reality. Like, like whatever goes on in the human realm, it does not matter to them at all. They have, like, some kind of higher calling. So what I love is that the main character, the, the girl, attempts to make a deal with them, and because uh, you know one of their souls are has basically escaped and they can't have that yeah so they make the deal with the girl about opening the you know she opened the puzzle box they're going to take her it's like hold on someone actually escaped so i'll find that soul for you in exchange for my own and they say okay fine do it but you have one day and then she does it and they're like okay come with us and he's like what are you talking about we made a deal it's like we don't make deals it's not what we do we just want to come back like their their ideas of like what's fair doesn't matter yeah and that's what makes it so interesting is that their morals are so different like there is no making a deal with them there's no compromise like to them the box is like the ultimate it is is a calling and if you open it that's an invitation and you can't turn down an invitation it's like why why would you open it in the first place you idiot of course we're gonna come hmm. yeah and uh this was a decent sized hit for a very small studio that was struggling new world pictures uh their best days were behind them uh, they had a couple of big hits in, well, for them, big hits in 86 with House and Soul Man. But in 87, they started getting into trouble financially because they weren't having the hits. And this gave them a, a nice reprieve for a little bit. Made $14 million off of, I believe, $900,000 budget. Uh, did well overseas. And so a year and a half later, we get Hellbound, the very last movie of the year. I'm not shitting you. I think it was literally released December 31st, 1988. <laughs> And what a Christmas treat for the kids. <laughs> what a weird movie to release during the holidays. Uh, not as big, um, a little bit more expensive, but it's basically, I think after this, only Heathers came out and then New World Pictures shut down. Um, but what a way to go out. Those two movies, Hellbound and Heathers. Hey. Um, I think this movie isn't as good as the first one, but it does bring in some new visuals, and it really opens up the mythology more about what that world is that the Cenobites come from. Yeah, I, I think for people like you and I who really enjoy sort of lore, um, I think it's it, it's really interesting that they kind of expand on it, but it does kind of take away some of the, the magic of the first one. 
because like we like you said when his brother when Frank's brother spills his blood you said that it was because it was his kin and there must be like some kind of like blood magic there but then we find out it could literally be anybody's blood as long as it's on the same spot where they died yeah and that kind of takes away is kind of like the the idea of blood magic having a sense of rules or, or boundaries and then it just kind of becomes like Okay, so literally anytime anyone bleeds anywhere, then someone could just come back from the dead. That's weird. Yeah, it has a cool effect, though, where he bleeds over the mattress and the blood starts to form up and, and takes him with it. Um, but a lot of this is... So, the doctor wants to bring back Claire. Uh, I can't... Why well, can't I remember the main, main, girl's, the main girl's name? Uh, the character. It's Kirstie. actually... What is it? It's Kirsty. Kirsty. She wants to get her father back because she believes that his soul is trapped there. And the doctor also wants to use uh, one of the girls in the mental institution that he works at because she's a master of like puzzles to use that uh, the puzzle box to open up the doorway. And it's kind of a lot of people using each other for their own motivations and playing with fucking fire here. Yeah, uh, yeah there's a lot of stakes going on. I, I one think... thing... I think the first half of this movie is really good. Again, the Cenobites are not really playing a big role. It has more to do with, like, this person's obsession with the other world and his sort of, like, him experimenting on his own uh, subjects because he owns a mental institution, or at least he's the, the, the head doctor in charge. And he has, like, this secret subfloor of, like, of people that he's basically experimenting on. Yeah, that's horrifying. Oof. Yeah, and it's really creepy, but again, the whole... The whole thing with the Cenobites about being sort of like a, a metaphor about like the pursuits of passion, both positive and negative, how that can like, uh, ruin your life. And he doesn't seem to have any kindness in him. He doesn't seem to have like any passion other than just hatred. Right, or and curiosity I, at best. Yeah, we can say that to be generous. But um, so like the, the the themes kind of fall apart at this point, and it it kind of just seems like a a big splashy meat fest with special effects going on. Yeah, which is which is still fine. I kind of that was a cool effect when the doctor finally gets taken and his the fucking shit wraps around his face and starts slicing oh, and dicing. But I think the labyrinth creature is it? No, Leviathan. The Leviathan I think was a really interesting special effect, and that's where you get a lot of stop motion. Yeah. So in this like movie, when they go into the world of uh, the Cenobites. It has a really interesting set of visuals that I think, like I said, it's very interesting. There isn't really a sense of cohesiveness. You can just walk down one hallway and be in a totally different area, which I really like that idea. But it doesn't really—it feels a little weird because, like, when you when they pull back and it's just like a matte painting yeah. of a of a labyrinth that kind of looks like the MC Escher um, painting with all the stairways going every which one. It kind of has that vibe going on, which I really like, um, the sense that like there's no like continuity or anything like that. Um, but that kind of makes it difficult to ground someone when you're walking around and just like anything can happen. Yeah. In, in a way that's not really satisfying. It's, it feels like a lot like budget restrictions, whereas it worked really yeah. well with the first movie because you're in one house for almost all the movie. Whereas the second one, you're supposed to be in this huge world. And yet you can tell, like, oh, this is probably just a couple million more at best, and it's just one generic set where they probably flipped it and shot it from different, redressed it, and then matte shots. 
Yeah, and it, whenever someone brushed up against the wall, you could clearly see it's just like paper. Yeah, paper mache. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, they tried to do something bigger, and it, they just, I don't think they just had a clear vision of what it was supposed to look like. Yeah. Uh, and in the very end, when there's that giant dagger size, uh, what do we want like oh, like a puzzle box. I really don't. I I think they just didn't have the money to visualize it properly because it's just like weird black animation coming in and out of it. But it doesn't really tell me anything. And the fact that okay, so first off, the Leviathan creature is uh, shown to be much more dangerous because he takes the Cenobites out so fast. But that had to be a big letdown for the fans of the first movie because they're like, Dude, these guys are badass. Oh, that that's it. That's all I get. Okay. One spike kills them. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know you could kill a Cenobite so easily. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's still like the first two are really the best. I, the third one is I'm, oh, God, I remember being so corny. Um, it's, it's, it's probably it's gonna pop fun. up. In, huh? <laughs> it, it, it's fun, I guess. Yeah. If you, if you really don't give a shit about the mythos of the first two movies and you just want something that's just kind of funny with Pinhead in it, then that then the third one's the way to go. Yeah, it's a little more metal than you know. Yes. The thing, the big thing though, is that Clive Barker. Okay, so he's kind of involved in the second one, but he part of the story. He executive produced it, but it was more of Tony Randall's film, uh, and he wasn't as his stories weren't as in depth. He was more of a visual guy, so he brought the special effects. You know, his ability to shoot better than the way that Clive Barker could do it. Um, but I think by the third one, when you grab Anthony Hickok, Clive Barker's just putting his name on it, collecting a paycheck, and just hoping that somehow he'll yes. gain control again. And this is the way it was for, like, what, the next two or three? And after that, he took his name off. He's like, no fucking way. Yeah, I mean, and good for him, because they made six more after that, and they were most of them were garbage. Yeah, and so he, after this, he does Nightbreed and Lord of Illusions. And does he direct another movie? He did not direct a... Um, Midnight Meat Train. I know that he produced and wrote it, but I don't think he ever directed after those. I don't think he did. Yeah, I, I would say the, the Hellraiser is his best movie. I I like the ambition behind Nightbreed, and Lord of Illusions is okay. Um, a dark detective story in the occult world is fine, but there's nothing like Hellraiser. Yeah. Oh, one thing. One thing I will give credit to the second movie, as even though I've been pretty harsh on it, I think it, I think it's still decent. It's a decent follow up. Just it was a really missing vision. Yeah. Well, um, but one thing that I do like about uh, the theme that they were going for this time, because like you said before, pretty much every character is always out for themselves in the movie, um, and the way that Kirsty ends up surviving at the end is by working together with someone else and yeah. someone who was was for the most part someone who was holding her back but never gave up on them, and so that's how they were able to make it out. So I do like that aspect of it, but it just like I keep saying, it just it lacked that critical focus of like wh who who is the main character in the second movie. Yeah, it's kind of hard to tell. Well, here's the other thing: is New World is desperate for a hit just to survive. So the first one was a fluke. You know, they spent under a million dollars. They just kind of released it out there, said this got some good reviews, and it just caught on. The second one, they're clearly trying to build a franchise now. They want to wow you. They want to turn this into their Freddy franchise. Yes, so, but. At least Especially he doesn't say any one. fucking jokes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, they keep going. The third one was just like, again, it was, yeah. It was, the third one was like, we're gonna we're gonna try to make this the, a new Freddy. Pinhead is gonna be the next big horror icon that's gonna be in several movies and be the main antagonist. 
And then that that was garbage. And then the fourth one came out, which I think is probably one of the worst movies I've seen. Um, and then the fifth one, that's when they started just putting Pinhead in random movies. Yeah. And that's actually when it got better. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, we were going to go see part four, um, but we ended up so, seeing Broken Arrow instead because the reviews choice. were so bad for... Uh, for um, what is the fourth one called? Bloodlines? Yeah. Yeah, the reviews were so bad. We're like, yeah, we're just going to wait till video. Plus, we had heard it was just a fucking nightmare because Dimension took it and cut it up. Um, it's just kind of a shame about the franchise because originally it was supposed to be three more movies. Clive Barker was going to really produce them. And they were going to be set in different eras, telling you know the previous, everything before the first Hellraiser and the, building that world. And then Dimension said, no, we're just going to compress it into one movie. So... You're trying to tell three stories where it's like the opposite of the fucking Hobbit, <laughs> where that's clearly one movie, but now you're stretching out the three, and so yeah, Bloodlines is the anti-Hobbit, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and it's still bad. Yeah, well, I, there's apparently another version out there somewhere. There's so many movies, dimensions sliced up. I don't know if they threw away the footage or what, but good lord, Shout Factory could come in and get those and fix them up. It'd be great. So the ones, um, just very quickly, if anyone is interested in watching more Hellraiser, the ones that I would recommend would be Inferno, which is number five. And I think the, the last one, Judgment, is is kind of going in a new direction. Um, and it's okay. It's not great. And it looks really cheap, but it has a really interesting idea going forward. Okay. Uh, where it's more of like a war between heaven and hell. It's kind of like the new idea that they're going with. Interesting. It's actually it's actually pretty cool. Okay. Um, and then there's one called Debtor, which is the dumbest name, but it's actually pretty interesting. And then the last one is the one where Cur uh, the character of Kirsty comes back, and that one is also pretty good. Okay. That's a, that's, God, that's a lot of them. I'm trying to keep tracking the numbers in my head. Um, but yeah, hopefully now that Dimension Pictures is fucking done, the Weinsteins can suck everybody's butt. Um I believe is now back with uh, Clive Barker, and then he can now relaunch the franchise on his own. I've heard rumors of a TV show, and I'm not sure that's what I want. I don't know how a TV show is going to work for a movie like that, or yeah. a series like that. Yeah. Okay, so uh, that is it for our podcast uh, this episode. Oh, wait, hold on. What, Isn't there, what? There's going to there's be a new Hellraiser um, with the guy that directed Nighthouse, and I cannot remember that guy's name. I don't even know what that is. What's Nighthouse? You never seen Lighthouse? Holy shit! Okay. Oh, the Wait. Lighthouse. Lighthouse, the one with no, uh... no, Nighthouse. Oh fuck! I don't know what that is. Then I, I was, I was on okay. it for a second. I was like, oh, William Defoe. <laughs> nope. No, Nighthouse. You should go. You should see it. Um, but it's by a director that mostly just has done like anthology movies. Uh huh. But he would do, he would just do like one segment of anthologies, and they're usually the best segments. Okay. He did like uh, VHS, and I think the movie was, I think the movie was called Hellbound which is ironic since we were just talking about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he makes he makes fantastic movies, um, or at least segments, and then he did The Night House, which is his first um, like full um, feature-length movie, and it's phenomenal. It has one of the few like actually earned jump scares in, in, in movies that I've ever seen, some of the best. Um, so it's a cat that jumps out of the trash. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> No man, what it's so it's so good. I gotta talk about it just for a sec. So like the jump scares that he do, he'll usually introduce the element to you. Like there's he'll like combine elements to make a jump scare, uh -huh. but he'll show them in isolation first, so it's not startling. But then bring them together in a way that's startling. 
It's fantastic and brilliant, and he's going to be making the new Hellraiser, and Pinhead's going to be played by a lady this time. Okay. Um, oh, this you mean it's woke? <laughs> <laughs> no, man, it's going to be sexier. That's what. Oh, I'm oh, well, my, uh, yeah. As long as long as your boner is happy, I guess it's not woke. <laughs> Yeah, now it's okay. <laughs> All right, so that is it for us. Uh, check us out on Facebook and Twitter under Hit Rewind. And that is it for tonight. All right, good night, everybody.